So when you get on the continent and you see an African who's like, yo, you guys are lazy, right? Don't think it's personal. It's coming from what America has shown them as the narrative about Black Americans. So I think once we're able to construct our own narrative about each other, we're able to change that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. 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 You better create your life. <laughs> create your life. Create your life. Create your life. Create Your Life family, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to share some exciting information from our sponsor. We only pick people and companies that we think are awesome to bring onto the show, so please support them. As a podcaster, I've spent hours and hours editing, doing show graphics, and much more, and I finally got fed up with losing all of my free time to post-production activities. So I decided to do something about it. And if you are a fellow busy podcaster who would like to just record and have someone else do the dirty work of graphic creation, tagging and uploading your show to your server and in-depth SEO generating show notes, go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series, and I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown, and today we are joined by another amazing guest. This young lady is a data scientist, an entrepreneur, and a writer. She's the co-founder of Chalet Casa, a bespoke events company curating experiences to connect diasporans and Africans, and the co-founder of Africans on China. Can't wait to get into that. A media startup, which is on a mission to amplify the African voice on China. She has written 400 plus articles with more than 8 million views on African and Black history and culture for global platforms such as Face-to-Face Africa, Blavity, Crunchbase, and the Future of Ghana. Her articles have become a reference used in many viral posts on Black history on Instagram. Sitting at the intersection of data, media, and business, she also advises countless technology startups in Ghana and Nigeria with the focus on 4IR solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about none other than Ms. Bridget Boyachi. And I have to admit that I was introduced to her by my fraternity brother, Shamil, after he and I had a conversation about me regarding my aspirations to move back to the continent after spending six months traveling it. So he connected me with some amazing people. And I have to admit that I'm very, very excited to chat with you, Bridget. So welcome to the Create Your Life series. Thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate it. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. And just as a shout out, you have such a podcast like worthy voice. Like, <laughs> I appreciate it. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Thank you. So, Bridget, I want to jump right in with you. I know we only have a little bit of time. You were born in Ghana and came to the U.S. when you were 10 years old. Can you describe that time and that transition for yourself? Yeah, sure. So I remember 
my first memories of America probably happened within the first two weeks of my time in this country. So I Mm -hmm. actually came around January 1st, like very early in the year, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly. And I remember getting off the plane and just being ashy, like just ashy in a way that I've never been ashy before. Why? Because I came in like a summer dress Mm -hmm. in the thick of winter. Um, (laughs) So when I think about my experience in America, I think that's an apt analogy, like just Mm -hmm. being out of place, Mm -hmm. not being prepared for the experience that I was about to have. So when I think about my early years here, using that analogy, I definitely felt out of my comfort zone. I wasn't prepared for what I was about to go through. I didn't necessarily have kind of an introduction to America in the typical way that I think some people would think if you move from another Mm. country to the States as a young person. I don't even know where to go from here, but (laughs) that's generally been the journey at 10, right? So you asked what was my initial thought Mm -hmm. at 10 or my initial impression. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that was it. Like, I'm out of my comfort zone. It's not, I'm cold. I'm not happy were my first thoughts. Yeah. (laughs) And you grew up in New York, so that's the experience too, right? Yeah, yeah. So I moved from Accra Street to like the Boogie Down Bronx, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Actually, soon after I got to this country, too. so I got here January 1st, 2001. My family and I went to, during the summer, we went to the World Trade Center. And mm-hmm. that was the September. That, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. September 11th happened. Yeah, September 11th. So yes, those were definitely some, like my experience, Mm -hmm. we probably have to do this takeover, but my Mm -hmm. experience was tumultuous, that's my point. (laughs) Okay. But one thing that you did say in that intro, you said you felt out of place, right? Or like you didn't belong. And so you spent the period of time where you moved back to Ghana. Right. right. So right. how did you end up adapting to being in America and going on and pursuing education and things like that? Because, I mean, as right. it stands right now, you know, you're a published author, you're an entrepreneur right. and all of these things. And I feel like the American spirit kind of cultivates that as well. So how did you adapt and kind of find your footing as coming in as a young Ghanaian girl? Yeah. So I must say that some of my formative experiences in terms of defining who I am as a person now definitely came from my educational experiences in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember as a young child in Ghana being very outspoken, being very aggressive in some of the things that I wanted, but they weren't necessarily looked on as prized values in a person. It was just like, oh my gosh, this girl is always like riding around her bike with boys, chasing tents and doing crazy things. But when I moved to the U.S., I actually went to a school, a charter school in the South Bronx that really took hold of like some of the things that I came to the classroom with and sought to nurture them and like really refine those skills into pushing me towards some of the leadership abilities that I have now. Mm. So I went to the charter school from the age of 10 to about 18. Most of my teachers, not all, but most of my teachers were Black teachers who were very headstrong in their ideas about what how Black students should be taught. They were mm. really trying to do something different in education. So those were some of my first experiences in terms of how I went from like feeling uncomfortable to now mm. being this leader that I am now in my community. It came from having good teachers, being in a Mm. good school, valued my ambition, valued my outspokenness and the things that I brought into the world that culturally is probably not as valued or upheld. 
Mm. And when you're saying culturally not as valued or upheld, what culture are you talking about? Because I know you essentially cross it between right. two worlds, right? Black American, right. which I am, and then Ghanaian right. as well. So right. which culture are you speaking of? Definitely speaking of my Ghanaian culture. So okay. in Ghanaian community, at least some bit of it is changing as it's changing all over the world. But in mm-hmm. Ghanaian communities, it can be very patriarchal, where by women are taught to be quiet, to be mm-hmm. subservient, especially as a girl child, you're taught to be more on the quieter side. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about some of the innate kind of exhibitions that I had that weren't valued culturally, that's what I'm referring to. So you had this, I'm going to call it tenacity as a young girl, right? right? And then you kind of get empowered in school. How do you balance between the two, right? Because you can be empowered at school, but then you can come home and there can be some kind of culture going on there where I guess your Ghanaian values are being upheld so strongly. So you have emerged, right? Out of this experience, you're still an entrepreneur and author and all of these amazing things. How did you keep that tenacity and that fire burning in order to stay this person that you were when you were such a young girl doing amazing things even then? Yeah, that's such a great question. I definitely think there were periods of time where I felt, what's the word I want? to use here. It's not discontent, but I've always had the sense that I'm navigating a dual identity, right? So mm. we know Du Bois talks about a dual consciousness from the mm. space of being Black in America, but being an African immigrant in America, the disparity of like the duality is even more jarring. Mm. Why? Because what you experience at home is not what you're seeing literally like a feet outside of your home, mm-hmm. right? So when you talk about how did I maintain my name identity Mm -hmm. juxtaposed to what I was seeing in my house or in the culture. I don't think I have a clear answer on that because I Mm -hmm. think it's a continuous progress. Like Mm -hmm. I still feel like I'm consistently navigating and pushing against some of those cultural expectations of me as a woman. So I remember recently as a close family member, I'm not going to put him out there, but he said, you know, you went to Ghana for five years and you came back and you don't even have a husband. I'm like, so for all the things I've been able to do in five years, (laughs) Like for most Ghanaians, it's still these cultural expectations that are important Mm -hmm. to them, right? Like as a woman, you're supposed to be married Mm -hmm. by a certain age. You're supposed to be having a family or have a family by a certain age. Mm -hmm. So I guess the short answer to your question then is, I don't think I've found like a true sense of like, okay, I'm stepping outside of the culture to do what I want to do innately. It's still a a balancing act for me. Mm -hmm. How do I navigate cultural expectations against Mm -hmm. my own dreams and aspirations and who I feel like I am? internally. I think it gets easier, right? Which I'm mm-hmm. sure for all of us, it does. You get more exactly. grounded in yourself. Yeah, you should get more grounded in yourself. As mm-hmm. you kind of accumulate some successes in your belt, you start to feel like, okay, I got this, irrespective of what my family or my culture says. So I think it gets easier for everyone mm-hmm. when you're navigating outside of the norms set for you, whether it's in your family, your community, mm-hmm. as it relates to your gender, your age, etc. So something else that I just thought was really amazing, I mentioned it in your intro, but this is yeah. like blowing, like I'm floored and so happy about it. In the last five years, you said you published 400 articles with 8 million views as a labor of love though. Can you walk us through like your inspiration to do that and also talk to us a little bit about the discipline that it takes to achieve something like that, right? Because a lot of times people, they look at the end result and they're like, oh, I want the 8 million views. They forgot that it took the 400 articles, right? And that's not including the articles that you've probably written years and years before the last five years, right? right? So if you could shed some insight on that, that would be amazing. 
Yeah, that's such a great question. When it comes to my motivation for writing, it actually came from sitting at the nexus of business and media, right? As you said in my bio. And what I noticed in the media space that a lot of people don't know is that in 2016, McKenzie published a report that there are over 400, I believe, businesses in Africa which generate revenue of 1 billion plus, right? So Mm -hmm. here's a continent that, let's say four or five years ago, right? is generating their businesses here who are making so much money, right? But the narrative, even in 2016, was like, yo, Africa, you trying to be in Africa? What's going on? Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. So when I got to the continent, I realized that the narrative, the reason why kind of the external world had a jaded perception of the continent was not because we didn't have businesses that were successful or we didn't have billionaires or millionaires, etc. Mm-hmm. The issue was a narrative problem, right? Mm, we weren't telling it. our own story. Right. Talk about it. Right. Okay, we're doing all of these things. How do we catalyze or catapult it into the international Mm -hmm. space, into the international realm? Mm -hmm. And as artists do with music or art, I felt like my space wasn't right. And so I worked with a media house actually face to face Africa. And during that time, right, like getting (laughs) when I say labor of love, it's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. Because from what I was making in the US to what I'm doing at these media houses, um publishing about three to four articles a day. You're researching, you're just like pushing out work. So Mm -hmm. that's how it happened because I was formerly working in the media space Mm -hmm. and I felt like it was my purpose Mm -hmm. having been on the continent. Yes, I can start businesses, but creating another million dollar business isn't going to change another person's, someone who's not in the continent's perception about what it is. It's not even going to change a person on the continent's perception about what it is, right? Mm -hmm. What's going to change it is the narrative we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. about who we are. So that's what really compelled me to write those pieces. And when you talk about discipline, like I said, I was in a space where I had to develop the discipline because I was working in a media house. Mm -hmm. But I also think in order to develop discipline, you have to care about the thing that you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. purpose, like I said, really informs discipline. If I feel like this is something that I really care about, I'm going to do it well. I'm going to commit to it. So you have to kind of define for yourself your why. And I think that really kind of begins to form or morph into the discipline you need to accomplish those goals. Love it. All right. Now I want to switch gears a little bit. And one of the companies that you are a part of is Africans on China. Right. Yeah. And so I had the opportunity to travel throughout the continent for that six months. And I mean, I was just seeing such a huge presence of China on the continent that for me, I was like, dang, you know what? I feel like the continent is being recolonized right now or mm-hmm. it's being colonized. Right. Oh, no. Recolonized mm-hmm. is the right statement. And so mm-hmm. I found that to be very, very interesting. And, you know, like I said, I follow you on Instagram. And so I saw one of your mm-hmm. posts in all of your posts are like insightful and encouraging and things like that. But there was an email that was shared from a Chinese gentleman who was saying that the Chinese are a superior race to Africans and that it is only right for the Chinese to take over Africa's resources because Africans do not know what to do with them. And of course, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that was the gist of it. And I was wondering, like, what do you think, what is your response to these type of writings? And, you know, we talked about frame of mind just a second ago, but you know what I mean? Like, how do you feel about this? Because it was something that I definitely saw in our people when I was traveling throughout the continent. Yeah, that's such a great question, Kevin. For me, when I think about the work we're doing as it relates to Africa and China, Mm. I think it's twofold. One is about getting Africans to understand 
kind of their own power, right? Mm. And this idea that they cannot be subjected to any authority without their consent, Mm -hmm. right? That's something we all know, but how we practice in it as a collective. Mm -hmm. Why do I say this? Well, as you said, right, in your travels, you saw China's presence on the continent. This is not something new. One of the articles we have on our website Mm -hmm. is from a PhD student there. So aside from France, there are more African students studying in France than any other country Mm -hmm. outside of the continent, right? So we tapped into some of the intellectual capital within the African community in Mm -hmm. China. And one of the PhD students in China Mm -hmm. wrote an article about the fact that the Chinese have been studying Africa for the last 100 years. Mm. China does not step anywhere where it does not have competitive power. Like they are strategic people. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking about, you know, the art of war. I'm thinking about some of these writings that are coming from Chinese philosophy. Mm -hmm. They study before they endeavor or they attack, right? So the Chinese presence on the continent, even though it's something that's now becoming kind of, you know, highlighted in the media space, it's not new. It's Mm -hmm. something that has been strategic. It's something that's been present on the continent for some time. Mm -hmm. What we know is that in the last 20 years, as the U.S. and like the U.K. and European markets have kind of stepped out outside of like really investing in the continent, the Chinese have gained a foothold. Mm -hmm. So when I think about some of the responses we're seeing either from the Chinese side or from the African side, my first thing is one Chinese person cannot speak for all Chinese people. I spent about two weeks in China in 2018 specifically to understand how the Chinese think of Africans. And Mm -hmm. by and large, I was in just Shanghai, which is like a drop in the ocean of your whole population. So I can't speak for every Chinese person, Mm -hmm. right? But my sentiment was that they don't have a collective idea that Africans are inferior to them. Mm -hmm. It's not like something the Chinese people have decided on as a collective. Mm -hmm. So I won't let that statement be indicative. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is that China's presence on the continent is strategic. Mm -hmm. It is informed, like I said, the article I referenced earlier. And that too, regardless of how informed that is, Mm -hmm. regardless of how strategic they are, regardless of how long the duration they've been engaging with the continent is, right? No one can continue to subjugate Africans without their consent. So what are we as Africans going to do about China's presence on the continent? That's what I'm focused on. Mm -hmm. How are we going to mobilize to recapture, whether it's the resources that we have Mm -hmm. or to recapture the collective identity of who we are as a people? If Africans don't believe they're not inferior to Chinese, who cares what a Chinese person has to say? I think it stinks us because some of us believe that. Mm -hmm. If someone is saying something that's not true, say, all right, it is what you said. Like, I don't have to fret over it. Well, I think, you know, part of that too is, is who has the ability to amplify the voice, right? right? Of whether someone is inferior and superior. I think that that's also a thing right. too. So like, I personally don't think that Chinese people are superior mm-hmm. to Africans or anything like or that. Vice versa. Right, right. Or vice versa. But what I do find to be interesting about that, it's a narrative that continues to go on, right? And then for me, that kind of translate into something that I think is even bigger, right? Which is when I travel throughout Africa, like I literally left the US because I was like, I don't know enough. And I wanted to go somewhere where people look like me. But I also thought that I wasn't growing enough, right? And so I'm like, I'm going to go to these specific countries in Africa and I'm just going to go see, right? Mm -hmm. And what I found was how similar people throughout Mm -hmm. the diaspora are. 
right? But there's this big thing where it's like, oh, no, you're Ghanaian. Oh, no, you're Black American. Oh, no, you're Caribbean. Oh, no, you're this, you're that. And we're all separated. And we're separating ourselves from each other, but we're all doing the same thing to an extent, right? Like, you guys are eating Banku. Like, we're having grits. The Caribbean's having porridge. South Africa's (laughs) having bop, right? I'm like, yo, we all eating the same thing, you know? And when I go travel, like, I'm not going to no resort or anything like that. Like, I'm literally, like, in the city with the people, like, chilling, you know what I mean? Kind of all down, like, really trying to understand how life is and understand the culture. That's anywhere I go. Wow, Create Your Life family, I hope that you are really enjoying this episode. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and let you know that our sponsors are giving special offers just for you. If you are a fellow busy podcaster who just wants to record and spend the rest of your time doing what you love, like working out at the gym with family and friends or traveling, use code CYLS for a discount on services when you go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. And so I guess, you know, I would love to hear from you because you're studying on this. I mean, even with your mantra connecting the African continent and the diaspora, like, what do you think are some of the ways that we could really get us all on the same page? You know what I mean? Just for an overall collective empowerment. So let me take a quick step back, Kevin, because I think this goes back into what we're talking about when you brought up the email from the Chinese person, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of just like eugenics, there being an inferior, superior race. We have to understand that that stems from the European construct of understanding standing Mm -hmm. Black people, right? So the Chinese are actually using the narrative that was used on them and that was used on Africans because they felt like, or they saw that it worked, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like the people began to believe that about Mm -hmm. themselves. And that brings me to your question about the disconnect between the diaspora. I think that definitely stems from it's intentional. Like Mm -hmm. that stems from European imperialism stems from slavery, right? Like it's not like when people, I I had a conversation with a good African-American friend recently about this topic. When people kind of like, Oh, why are you Africans against black people? Why are you black people against Africans? I'm like, we have to understand that it's intentional. It was designed for us to do that. So if an African-American comes to me and says something derogatory or hateful, I don't take it as dumb speaking. I take it as this is systematically ingrained in you for you to hate me. So the first thing I think we have to acknowledge is that it's an external construct. It's not innate to us. Mm-hmm. Once we are able to identify that, that it's not personal, someone like someone of a different Black lineage coming to you and, you know, not feeling the same way, it's not necessarily personal. We open up the room for more dialogue, which is what mm-hmm. we need to be able to see a, see that we're really similar. Let's let people say what they want to say, right? But understand the historical context that that was the discord that was sold in us by American imperialism, right? So after slavery, civil rights, et cetera, we get into 1990s and let's go from like the 1970s all the way till mid 2000s where American media just shows like save the children ads every other day on TV, right? Mm -hmm. So when I got into the US and I'm in school and they see kids with like, you know, young kids are watching on TV. the bellies, stuff like that, the flies. Big bellies, flies, on your face so when I go and like they see monkeys and jungles and the kids running around they're like have you seen a monkey before I'm like no like if I want to see a monkey I'll have to go to the, <laughs> to zoo, the zoo just like right, you would right, right? Like, to the safari that's, wanna, that's wild <laughs> 
want to go see a lion. So I was like, oh, have you ever been on a lion before? <laughs> it's like, no, that's not possible. But again, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's an intentional construct by American imperialism mm-hmm. to have Africa look like this mm-hmm. so that when we're going into Africa to steal, to exploit, it's like, okay, because they're different. They're not human. They're mm-hmm. subhuman. So how do we change that? To your question, right? How do we bring the diaspora together? We change the narrative. Mm-hmm. We show African-Americans in their full humanity, right? We don't allow the Western media to dictate for us who we are to each other. Mm-hmm. Just like I said about like the media representation of Africans in America, it's the same thing for African-Americans on the continent, right? The movies you're watching are like 90s violent movies where like African-American men are thugs. All you see are thugs and baby mamas and they don't go to work and mm-hmm. they're smoking. So when you get on the continent and you see an African who's like, yo, you guys are lazy, right? Mm-hmm. Don't think it's personal. It's coming from what America has shown them as the narrative about Black Americans. So I think once we're able to construct our own narrative about each other, mm-hmm. we're able to change that. And do you know what happened in the last 10 years? We did it. Mm. We did it through social media, mm-hmm. right? In 400 years of like Black people not being able to construct their own narrative, let's say 390, in the <laughs> last 10 years through social media, mm-hmm. through blogs, through Instagram, Twitter, etc. Like, Kevin, tell me the images you've seen that informed your decision to go to the continent. It didn't come from CNN, did it? It came probably from seeing people on social doing cool things on the continent. I'm going to be honest, I still don't think Black people are in control of our narrative to the degree. Like, we might give the images, but we don't own it. You know, me and some of my friends, especially my African friends, will have, like, jokes, especially the Nigerians, oh God, right? And I'll be like, I'll be like, (laughs) yo, yeah, I love the pride (laughs) that they have, right? But I'll be like, look, dude, I'm like, yo, I'm Black American, bro. Like, we have the most dominant culture in the world, but we don't own it. So the narrative of it either, right? Like think about what just happens if someone who's high, I don't want to like speak specific names, but they get in certain type of trouble. They can literally have the rug snatched up under them, right? And so we still don't control the narrative that is there, which I think is important, but we do and we have been able to gain control of it to an extent, right? And so, you know, to come back to your question, what inspired me, for me, it was more so curiosity, right? I'm like, mm. okay, I want to go places that I haven't been. Like, I've been to Japan, I've been to Australia, I lived in England, like, I've been to these different places. And so, right. I've also had the opportunity to meet really, really good people. And so, mm. you know, a couple conversations with somebody, and I'm kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, like you say, I'd be like, oh, well, are you from Accra? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if we got into a deeper conversation, like, and you tell me where you're from in Accra, like, I'm kind of like, like, okay, right. well, you know what I mean? Like, now I'm curious. So I'm the type of person, I'm going to go Google it. Mm. And then I want right. to, like, know these other things. So I'm probably going to come back to you with, like, 10 questions. And you're going to be like, what's up right. with dude? Right? And so right. I'm just literally just curious. So for me, it was kind of like, I need to see more Black people and understand where I come from. But it wasn't, right. to your extent, like, I ain't going to lie, that I wanted to go see that statue in Senegal, the Renaissance statue. I did see that on social right. media. And I was like, I got to check right. that out. <laughs> I was like, yo, I'm going to Senegal just to see that. So actually, you know what? Yeah, yeah, you're right. That definitely took me, because I didn't even really know about Gore Island as right. much as I seen that statue. And I seen that black man holding that baby and this woman with him. I was like, oh. Right, we I got to see that. I'm like, yo, I, got, I was like, yo, I want a replica of that. And so I went there, man. I went searching for the replica. I couldn't really find no good ones, but I'm going to go back. Senegal, to me, had the best market that I've ever seen in terms of the- I believe you. The art? Yeah, but the carvings of the women yeah. and the detail in their uh, hair, it was so amazing. Uh, I believe you. Yeah. I believe you. Senegal and art to me is the fine. They have an art festival. I forget the name of it. Mm-hmm. That's like world renowned. Mm-hmm. People flock to it every year. 
But Kevin, I want to go back to the social media point because I will fight anyone and their mama on this, right? I don't think we own our media platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So like, sure, we don't own Instagrams and the Twitters and whatever. But what that happens, sitting at the intersection, again, of technology, business, and media, what I see is what technology does, especially social media, Mm -hmm. is that it democratizes where our information comes from, right? So obviously, Mm -hmm. my platform of like, let's say 3,000 people, it's not going to match CNN of 1.5 million. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, in my small way, every day I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, should I get to talk to just a hundred people? Like when you were younger and like you you see your parents, I'm going to give a speech to a hundred people. What's like such a big deal. But today we speak to a hundred people plus every day and we take it for granted. I don't look at that lightly, right? So I understand that the scale of big media versus like social Mm -hmm, media mm -hmm. probably doesn't line up. But when we talk about changing the narrative, I think it's these small incremental things that are going to make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. We don't own it. That's a whole different issue that we got to tackle. Mm-hmm. But you being able to see like someone living their daily life in Accra in ways that you never would have seen had mm-hmm. we not had these platforms to me is very powerful. And also I'll use one last example, mm-hmm. then you can cover it, right? So mm-hmm. Ghana last year did the year of return initiative, 400 years, you know, et cetera. We know there, whatever. I see you rolled your eyes. So we can talk about the issues of that Yeah, later. we can talk about that later. <laughs> but you, <laughs> let me get my point out about technology, right? So what happened was, according to some estimates, the country brought in, let's say, $1.9 billion Mm -hmm. in tourist revenue, right? Mm -hmm. They weren't attracting, when we talk about paid media, they weren't attracting CNN, Mm -hmm. et cetera. What they were using was Steve Harvey. like Right, so Steve Harvey comes to visit Mm -hmm. and like Steve Harvey posts and then everyone is like, oh, I got to go to Ghana in December. Bozumak posts and it's, I got to go to Ghana, right? So what we talk about, like, there's nothing CNN can show that's going to move the needle in the way that our own people are going to move the needle when they have the access to me. So that's why I'm really such a huge proponent of like really celebrating this time that we have Mm -hmm. to change the narrative on our own, right? You and I probably in our small little ways we're doing it, but like, I think that that matters. In in Um, mass. I mean, you're hitting it on the head. You actually are changing my point of view on my answer or the rebuttal that I had because I can definitely see your point. And I know you're a data scientist, so I know you got this in the bag. You're like, look, dude, I can show you this (laughs) article that bad. Some numbers, numbers, right? I'm like, oh, but I'm gonna watch who I'm talking to. But you know, and after you say that, then you also bring me to something else that I thought was that to me is near and dear, right? A lot of times people look at Africa like it needs saving. And I'm like, Africa doesn't need to be saved. You know what I mean? That's the narrative, like you said, you know, that's being pushed. I'm like, yo, all of the world's greatest resources are based out of that continent. And if some of these other Western, like first world countries didn't have these resources from Africa, they would turn into third world countries. Right. Right. So I think that that's interesting. And you're right. You know, people are definitely becoming more familiar. I would say from micro influencers like like yourself. Right. Like me, you know, like we have that hundred people. Or that 200 people that, you know what I mean? We can show these images and things like that too. And people are, they might not say nothing, you know, on your page and your comments, but they'll DM you and say, hey man, you know, how do I go about going here? How do I go about doing this thing and that thing? And so that's the multiplier effect, mm -hmm. right? So you do it for me, I do it for another person. Like that's how it's going to happen until we can kind of accrue the wealth to kind of take over and or do a big kind of revolution to take over the whole thing. Speaking of revolutions, you advise (laughs) on startups, like hella startups. (laughs) And, you know, on the four industrial 
Revolution Technology. Revolution, yeah. So I need you to elaborate on that. Tell us what that is. Yeah. And then also, yeah. you know, tell us about some of the interesting developments that you've been able to witness or aware of. Yeah. So when I think about 4IR, what we're really talking about is the introduction of or the integration of technology with human intelligence, mm-hmm. right? So that's where artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, come into play. I think some of the most impressive mm-hmm. innovations in this space are going to come out of the continent just by virtue of like the way people think there. Mm-hmm. So I actually wasn't even having conversations about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. when I was in New York City, which is like, quote unquote, the financial capital of the world, right? right? right. It took going to Ghana for me to get into AI, mm-hmm. for me to get into fourth industrial revolution stuff, mm-hmm. right? And the kind of things people are doing in that space are tremendous mm-hmm. with sometimes with little resources. It's really incredible. I love that. Yeah. So when you talk about like African resources, right? One of the things I want people to know is like, when we even talk about technology, without the Democratic Republic of Congo, we wouldn't have iPhones, right? right. Because of the Colton. cobalt. Yeah, it's a Colton or cobalt. One of those things. I think right, you're right. right. We both <laughs> right. We both right. That out. <laughs> we both right. <laughs> but when I think about like the natural resources coming together with the human capital, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be massive. So on the kind of lower level, some of the introductions I'm seeing are, and when I talk about 4IR, I advise a blockchain company in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. They're training lawyers and using blockchain. That's going to be incredible, Mm -hmm. right? How do we use blockchain technology to facilitate trusted transactions Mm -hmm. everywhere in the world? And when you think about Nigeria and all these things, it's really impressive. How's that going to play out? Because to my knowledge, or, you know, what I've been told is is that in some places on the continent, credit is not a thing. So translating, I guess, from hard currency over to using digital, how do you see that either being a challenge or being a solution? Yeah. Yeah, so it's funny. Someone just DM'd me the other day like, yo, y'all have credit in Africa? He was trying to move. I was like, no, we don't. You got to come with hard cash. Yeah, you better, um, know. better know. So when you see an African millionaire, it's not assets, man. Oh. They got hard cash. Oh, like, yeah. They bought. Like it's not, it's not money, finance. Right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what I try to tell people all the time. We're not on mortgage out there. Like, whatever you own mm. is yours. Including the land. Hey, when you talk about credit, mm-hmm. right, and uh, access to credit, Some of the research I was looking at recently was about the fact that in like over this COVID period, transactions in blockchain and Bitcoin Mm -hmm. kind of exploded Mm -hmm. on the Mm -hmm. continent. Why? Because with the lack of cash, Mm -hmm. right, people are storing their assets and other Mm -hmm. digital wallets, right? I guess my point here, Kevin, is that in the absence of some of these things that were used in the West, i.e. credit, Mm -hmm. the Africa can literally leapfrog into some of these virtual digital spaces Mm -hmm. because we don't have the intermediary, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, which to me is so exciting, Mm -hmm. right? So like everyone on the continent is like, Okay, we don't have tower lines on the continent. We're not about to do that. Okay, boom. We're going from no phones to now everybody having two or three cell phones. So when you get to a crowd, people are like, oh, let me, you know, they're right, like, right, people right. are juggling cell phones. Like, <laughs> they say there are more cell phones in Africa than there are toothbrushes. Like, literally everyone has like two that. to three cell phones. And you know, what, yeah. what else is interesting that I didn't care for is I think right. the people in Africa pay more for data than anywhere else in the world. 
And I was like, oh, you know what I mean? It's frustrating. Yeah, it is. You know, because at a certain point you have to step back. Like number one, one of my biggest things is wherever you travel, you always step back, like take your American isms and push them to the side and appreciate and respect how people are living and what they do there. And also put on the lens to see how, where you may, the differences between the two, you know what I mean? Where you're from, you know, versus where you're at. And also look at the way that other people may have their hands in people's pockets or, you know what I mean? The treatment of these different things. And that was just so interesting to me because there was just, oh, some people didn't have data at all. Right. And you're kind of like, dang, you commuting like an essay. I feel like people was commuting at least six hours a day. Right. And all they had was, you know what I mean? The data to on these commutes because, you know, you in the buses, what do they call it? Right. Boda Boda was the name of the motorcycle that I was uh, on. I can't think of it, but like I'd be taking like the local buses and stuff like that. I didn't get to do it right. in Ghana, but I definitely like want to. Like I'm, I'm going back to Accra, but you have to. You yeah, have to it, do it over. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't go for the year of return, but I went the year before. Mm. And so like I was kind of like, well, if everybody and their mama's gonna be there, I'm probably gonna sit this one out. Mm. Right. Right. But it was interesting. The slave yeah. castles were interesting. You know, a lot of it. Like, I study that stuff. Like, I'm big on history, especially Black American history. Like, I know a lot of Black American history. But to learn about the kings and the queens especially, is it Asante? Asante? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Yasantua. Yeah, Yasantua. Yeah. yeah, see, I, I smoke yeah. it. Yeah, like these sisters was no joke, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Right. You just had this appreciation. I think one of the other things for me is just sitting back, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but from my observation, there wasn't mm-hmm. no patriarchal situation. Well, not that there wasn't a patriarchal situation, but it, to me, it seemed like from a historical standpoint, the women were same level with the men, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of cases also worshipped as being more, right? Mm-hmm. And so I embraced that, like, a thousandfold, but it was just very interesting to see it from a historical standpoint because you can see how colonialism's changed the narrative and the treatment and things like that. Because I'm looking, like when I'm looking, I'm not just looking at the surface. Like I want to read the stuff. I want to know why this is like this. And I want to sit with some of the elders and have these conversations to understand, you know, what was taught and passed down to them and stuff like that. So it was a great experience, especially to go to the different places. And I love that. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. I mean, you touch on so much, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, when we're talking about technology, they, I'm not going to lie. I'm excited about the possibility, but I also know there could be so much more. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that there's a lot of talent on the continent, mm-hmm. but there's not enough opportunity or enough right. access. Right. A lot of it relates to some of these infrastructural challenges that you mentioned, mm-hmm. right? Data is, like, so expensive on the continent. People not having work. Africa is the youngest population on the continent, in on the, the world. world, right? I think what is it? Is it sixty percent of young people? Yes, about sixty to seventy percent. Like I was in yeah. Ethiopia, you know, having some conversations about workforce and development and skill set and things like that. Like, right? I'm telling you, I'll be having like some real conversations. So you I understand? Know. You only look Ethiopian a little bit to me. Did okay. they tell you? Nah. Oh, did they say you look East African? They didn't say that. Nah, they didn't think I was from there. Where did they think you were from? I got all kinds of stuff because the other thing is like I have curly hair so like when I was right. in Kenya I had hired this young lady and she was like why you got a perm in your hair and I was like what <laughs> she's like Yo, your hair's a scam and I was like what she was literally like your hair's a scam I like literally had to pull up a baby picture to be like this is my oh, hair and, that's um, so funny but then like when I was in South Africa you know like the lady she was like you're not from here and I was like, why not? She was like, you had a West African body type. You can't be from, like, so I'm like, okay. And then what happened when you got to West Africa? What did they say? But the, my demeanor is not Ghanaian. 
Right. So right. it's like yeah. So you know what it is like Africans can tell when you're not African by just like your demeanor. But yeah. most of the time, when you're on the continent, they'll try to like pin you to a place ancestrally. Yeah, yeah. So depending on like where you are, they'll say, "Oh, you look East African." Or have you tried any of the ancestry stuff, like DNA, trying to figure out where? No, no I ain't trying to give it up. <laughs> they probably already got it. I but told I you, to that's data. It. Right. <laughs> I mean, I heard like the Fulani thing, but I gotta be honest with you, I gotta jump off. But we're not done. We're not even halfway through the freaking interview. We just like chalk and oh shot. My gosh. <laughs> I know it might just become like a two-part situation. Okay. So it might just be over two things. So we'll get back into the actual line of questioning. But I think the way that we're doing it is good. Create Your Life family, this interview was hilarious and so fun. So much so that we actually ran out of time. So we're actually going to turn it into a two-part interview. So please stay tuned and listen to episode number 181 to get the part two. So I want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone that you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to Info at CYLseries.com. The Create Your Life series is executive produced by me, Kevin Y. Brown, and produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. Until next time, create your life and feed your ambition. This episode was brought to you by PodcastLaundry.com. I love Podcast Laundry. It provides a real solution to free up my time. And time is the only resource that we cannot get back. Podcast Laundry was created with love to help other fellow busy podcasters free up time so that they could do more of what they love, whether that's traveling, time with friends and family, or working on other ventures. If you want to free up your time, then have Podcast Laundry do the dirty work of note-taking, graphic creation, editing, show tagging, and uploading for you. Go to PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. And remember to use code CYLS. That's PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273.